For the past 17 years, we have had a monthly reading group meet at the monastery. During that time, we've read well over 100 books. It's pretty remarkable, uh, the staying power of this group. Part of the inspiration behind it was a book called Literary Converts, which was published in 1999 by a fellow named Joseph Pierce. Pierce chronicled the lives and writings of famous Catholic converts, including Graham Greene, Evelyn Waugh, and Robert Hugh Benson. Uh, It's a lovely book, Literary Converts, but one can't help but notice that uh, the Catholic literary revival didn't seem to uh, make it through the 1960s entirely intact. One might imagine that there are no more high-profile converts to the faith as there were back in the first part of the 20th century, but this would actually be a pretty big mistake. Pierce himself is a recent convert from a white nationalist group in Britain to a a Catholic. Other contemporary converts and reverts include people like Dave Brubeck, the musician, Hank Aaron, philosophers Alasdair McIntyre and Edward Fazer, and Norma McCorvey, the plaintiff in the infamous Roe versus Wade case. One potentially consequential revert or convert, depending on how you look at it, is the case of an intellectual named René Girard. It might sound funny considering that he's a professor of French literature, but he underwent a profound, profound conversion based on his reading of European novels in the 1950s. And He and his entire family were received into the Catholic Church on Wednesday of Holy Week, March 25th, 1959, with the famous Dante scholar, John Fricaro, acting as godfather to Girard's children. The reason I say that this conversion was momentous is that it's closely tied to Girard's intellectual conversion, and he experienced both of these as a kind of death and resurrection. He was working on a literary biography of Dostoevsky at the time. Now, Dostoevsky very, almost literally underwent a death and resurrection. He was sentenced to death uh, in the 1830s for anti-Tsarist radicalism. And after receiving a last-minute reprieve, he was already standing in front of the firing squad, uh, he served time in Siberia where he came to rediscover his orthodox faith. Now, I don't need to go into the details of Girard's thought, which is fairly complex, but it's become very influential in Catholic theology in the last 20 years. What I want to point out today, it has to do with the readings, is that he discovered the presence of Jesus Christ in the universal figure, a figure that we encounter daily in politics, in our personal lives, and so on. That is the figure of the scapegoat. The word originates in the 16th chapter of the book of Leviticus, where Aaron lays his hands on a goat and he transfers the contagion of sin away from the people of Israel onto the goat. The goat is then banished from outside the camp and takes away this contagion, takes away the sin. The people are purified. This is the primitive form of what we today call Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. By means of the scapegoat, the people of Israel, fractured by sin, are put back at one, hence the derivation of the word atone. 
What Girard realized was that Jesus becomes the scapegoat for all humanity, and he reveals the fact that we make scapegoats all the time to avoid encountering ourselves. We point the finger at somebody else, and then we can all get along and kick that person out of the group. It reveals to us our complicity in the work of sin that hides behind this finger-pointing and blaming and isolating of those who are supposedly at fault for our problems. Lepers, of course, were convenient scapegoats in the ancient world, as were foreigners, persons with mental handicaps, those suffering from various diseases. And if you're listening carefully here, you'll notice that these are just the people that Jesus seeks out in his ministry. It's such a beautiful passage in today's gospel. The leper says to the Lord, if you wish, you can make me clean. I'd like to tell you what the Greek says literally in this. Uh, The leper literally says, if you will it or if you desire, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I will it. I desire it. The leper is not only made clean bodily. This is important, obviously. Uh, and we shouldn't minimize the, the problem of a contagious disease like this in the ancient world, where they didn't have the medicine that we have today. But more than that, the leper has the chance, now that he doesn't have leprosy, to be reunited with his people, with his family, his neighbors. He can worship God in the temple. He's atoned, he's put back at one with all of his friends and with God. Now, today's first reading has obvious relevance to this because it explains how God's law, the Torah, instructs the people to deal with the problem of leprosy. But what I find curious in uh, this reading has to do with a passage that's parallel to one we hear in the gospel. So the first reading ends with the line, He shall dwell apart, making his abode outside the camp. So the leper is driven out of the camp. He's a scapegoat in a sense. The last sentence of the gospel echoes this idea. It says, he remained outside in deserted places. Except that the scapegoat is not the leper in the story. It's Jesus. He's taken, in some sense, the uncleanness of the leper onto himself. But the sentence doesn't end there. It continues. And people kept coming to him from everywhere. So the people follow Jesus out into the desert. They they all sort of take the side of the scapegoat, as it were. This is interesting because it parallels a line that we read in the letter to the Hebrews. And this is the New Testament document that draws the clearest connection between Jesus' death on the cross and the ritual of Yom Kippur. It reads, let us go forth to him. The writer is telling us this. Let us go forth to him outside the camp. Bearing abuse for him. For here we have no lasting city. And I include this last line because again it finds a parallel in the gospel. Mark tells us it was impossible for Jesus to enter a town openly. And here I'm going to begin drawing my conclusion of all of these scattered ideas. Jesus can't enter the town openly, but this isn't because he's supremely unpopular. We, we know that. Uh, He's not visibly unclean like a leper. It's actually that he's too popular. And the risk is that his entire ministry will be misunderstood if he lets himself be taken away by these crowds inside the city, if he gives into giving the people what they think they want. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus only once openly enters a city. It's the last week of his life. 
He enters Jerusalem to great acclaim and enthusiasm. And we'll reenact this scene together in six weeks when we begin Holy Week. The very people who followed Jesus into the town that day abandoned him a week later, allowing him to become the scapegoat. He's the problem, not us. I don't want to get in trouble. Let him get in trouble. Right? It's clearly better for one guy to perish than for the whole nation. This is how Caiaphas puts it, but everybody's on his side. So, what does this mean for us? Lent begins on Wednesday. I probably don't need to remind you of that. We tend to think of Lent as a time of self-improvement, and there's something to this. We want to be spiritually prepared and cleansed in preparation for the great Paschal mysteries, to be sure. But what does it mean exactly to be purified and ready? Is it not by dying to ourselves? Girard said that his intellectual conversion was comfortable and self-indulgent. He went from being a no-name professor to being a somewhat notorious and controversial cultural theorist. But he said his spiritual conversion was costly. And this is true for anyone, I think, who makes this route into the Catholic Church. It means bearing abuse for Jesus. It means being a pariah. So Lent is a time when we take stock of where we stand. Maybe we're not converts, all of us here. Where do we stand in relationship to the Savior? Am I a disciple because I want Jesus to make me feel comfortable and give me everything I want? Or am I ready to die to my own will and follow the crucified outside the camp? Will I retreat to the comfort of the familiar? Or, by fasting and diligent prayer, will I go forth to Christ away from these comforts? Where will I be on Good Friday? Cowering with Peter and Mark, or standing beneath the cross with the Blessed Mother and John? Will I go on scapegoating others for my failings and problems, or will I humbly acknowledge the ways in which I'm responsible for my own problems and probably for a lot of other people's problems too? Now is the time to begin answering that question for ourselves.